0: We've chosen today at History Hack to mark the 80th anniversary of the evacuations at Dunkirk. We could have done a usual show. We wanted to do something that people could listen to down the years. And we wanted also to put Dunkirk into context in the war, as well as telling people about the experiences. We have uh, Josh Levine, who author of a book on Dunkirk, obviously, and many World War II, World War I books. He also was the historical advisor on Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan. So he has put together a really interesting show for you. And we're really thrilled that this actually features two dozen History Hack listeners who kindly volunteered to lend us their voices. So we hope this does the men and women of Dunkirk justice.
3: On the 4th of June 1940, Winston Churchill gave an iconic speech. He spoke of the Dunkirk evacuation, which had just come to an end, as a miracle of deliverance, achieved by valour, perseverance and other qualities that the British consider British. But he wasn't about to pull the wool over the eyes of the British people. Wars, he said, are not won by evacuations. He went on to admit the loss of weapons and vehicles. And above all, he described what had just happened in France and Belgium as a colossal military disaster. And Churchill spoke of what was likely to come. We are told, he said, that Herr Hitler has a plan for invading the British Isles. But Churchill knew that we would go on to the end. We would fight, he told us, on seas and oceans, but also in fields, streets and hills. He was talking about guerrilla warfare, the guerrilla warfare that would take place once the Germans had actually gained a foothold. Churchill wasn't sugaring any pills. And finally, Churchill sent out a mighty S.O.S. to the United States and to his friend the President. Britain would carry on the struggle, he promised, until rescued and liberated by the Americans. Joan Seaman, a young woman living in Pinner at the time, talked about the speech years later.
0: I remember being very frightened indeed, until I heard the speech that Churchill made on the radio when he said, We will fight on the beaches, etc., etc. I suddenly wasn't frightened anymore. It was quite amazing. He stopped me being afraid.
3: In fact, Joan Seaman can't have heard Churchill making that speech. It was reported later that evening, but Churchill delivered it only in the House of Commons. He first recorded it in the late 40s. Yet Joan isn't alone in recalling it, others have the same false memory. And they're inspired by the force of Churchill's personality and by his sheer domination of the period. Bear in mind that there were many back in 1940 who didn't trust Churchill at all.
4: On the day that Churchill came to power, I called on an elderly couple who had been great friends of my parents. We were discussing the leadership question and I said, I wouldn't be surprised if old Churchill doesn't go and get into power. The man, who was obviously a much older generation, said, good heavens, I hope not. It made me understand how greatly his generation of Englishmen distrusted Churchill. In their eyes, he was a rather wild man politically.
3: Oliver Lyttelton, soon to be a member of Churchill's government, understood him very well.
4: There were
5: people much cleverer than Winston with a much more balanced brain, but you or I would not follow them up a glacier. Henry V never said now, gentlemen, I've been into the whole of this thing, and the channel is very tricky at the moment, and we can't get the reinforcements. The bridgehead is too small, and, in short, I feel there is nothing else but to launch an attack, he said. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Churchill had that extraordinary power. Churchill made you feel as though you were a great actor in great events. Leadership is dulling the rational faculty and substituting enthusiasm for it. In 1940, on a careful evaluation of the odds, nobody would have moved.
3: But in the aftermath of Dunkirk, people did move. They engaged, they resisted, and that's why the evacuation from Dunkirk was crucial at the time, and it's why it must be remembered today. You see, There's long been a tendency to view Dunkirk, particularly in America and beyond our borders, as just a parochial little British story, as that bit that happened before Russia and America got involved, before the war really began. Well, no. If the British Expeditionary Force hadn't got away, had it been destroyed or captured at Dunkirk, Britain would have been forced to seek terms with Adolf Hitler. Britain would have become, as Churchill warned his cabinet and will come to that, a slave state. And can you imagine the world would be living in today? Europe would have been Nazified. Without Britain to preserve freedom and the rule of law, Nazi Germany's norms would have bled across Europe. Barbarism, coercion, intolerance. These would be our default settings. And I say our. I certainly wouldn't be alive. Jewish people would long since have disappeared from Britain. Other questions. Would America have entered the war? And if they had, where would the second front have come from? So for anybody who still thinks that Dunkirk represents just a nostalgic echo of past British glories, well, I urge you to think again. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Our story begins very shortly after Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's announcement that Britain was at war with Germany. Within a week, A British expeditionary force of four divisions was arriving at French ports. John Williams, a sergeant in the Durham Knight Infantry, was a part of it.
1: Before we went out to France, my mother said, Don't shoot any of those poor German boys, will you? No, Mum, I said, not unless they shoot me first. But the morale of the battalion was high. We were going to the magic place of France, where our fathers and uncles had been.
3: And like their fathers and uncles before them, some got a rousing send-off.
5: The people in the streets cheered us when the coach left Bethnal Green. They turned out in their thousands and they were cheering us and waving us off.
3: It's worth remembering that life in the army meant regular meals and regular pay for a generation brought up during the Depression and it meant adventure for young men who, with very few exceptions, had never been abroad before. Peter Hadley, Lieutenant of the Royal Sussex Regiment noticed the excitement of his men as they arrived in France and members of the Queen's Royal Regiment crowded the windows of their train as they set off through this strange foreign land. But first impressions can disappoint when expectations are just too high. On the train, the men quickly drifted away from the windows back to their card games. And when Hadley read his soldiers letters home, quite a few expressed disappointment that France wasn't really all that different from England. By the 27th of September, 152,031 British soldiers, as well as 60,000 tonnes of frozen meat, and crossed from Britain to France. And so began the Phoney War, or Bore, B-O-R-E, War.
5: Mood on the ship going out was quite cheerful. There were one or two people who had just been married prior to being called up, and they weren't very happy. But there was so much unemployment about at that time. It was something for people to do. And there was money coming in their pockets, even though it was a small amount, about 14 shillings a week. When we got to France, it was like a holiday at the beginning. A hard-working holiday, but a holiday.
3: It was hard-working because the men were expected to dig into their new French positions. It was a holiday because there were new people to meet and new experiences to be had. William Harding of the Royal Artillery.
5: The French civilians were absolutely marvellous, absolutely fantastic. They used to nod to you in the street, and if you went into a cafe, they would never keep you waiting. They'd count your change out, all the little coins, and make sure you understood what you'd paid for. They were very kind.
3: So kind, in fact, that when a British military policeman was sentenced to death for the murder of a French civilian in December thirty nine, local people sent letters to the military authorities begging them to spare the condemned man's life. The local mayor wrote in touchingly flawed English, It certainly is not because a man has committed a grave fault that we shall cease to love the British army. And even the victim's mother wrote, I would not have his mother weeping for her son, as I do for mine. Lance Corporal Goulding was eventually reprieved. But even if they were welcome guests, why were British soldiers in France at all? A German attack was certainly expected. But not in France. France was fully protected, or so the French thought, by the mighty Maginot Line, a series of heavily defended fortresses on the border with Germany. It bristled with the latest technology. It was famously impregnable. Ils ne passeront pas, cried the French, they will not pass. So the German attack was expected to come instead in Belgium, and as soon as it was launched, the British and French planned to move 75 miles forward into Belgium to meet it. Then, received wisdom said, the two equally matched sides would settle down to a grinding war of trenches and barbed wire, pretty much like the last one. So why didn't the British Expeditionary Force start in Belgium, where it could have prepared some much more useful defensive positions? Well, the answer was because Belgium was still neutral. The Belgians didn't want to provoke the Germans into attacking them so British and French forces weren't allowed to enter Belgian territory until Germany had actually begun its attack. Now, not everybody was pleased about this. In January, Churchill gave his views of those countries that stayed neutral. Each one, he said, hopes that if he feeds the crocodile enough, the crocodile will eat him last. But throughout the autumn, the winter, and on into the spring, the Germans didn't attack. The British stayed in France, and they got to know their hosts. Colin Ashford of the Highland Light Infantry tried all kinds of new food, even horse meat. Alexander Frederick paid five francs every evening to the same cafe owner. And every evening he enjoyed a plate of egg and chips, a chunk of bread, and a cafe au lait. And as for the booze, Sergeant John Williams says,
1: The troops mostly stuck to the dark beer and wine was a foreign thing to us. If we did try any of the local stuff, it was the spirits. We tried that Calvados, very strong. There was a little bit of cider drinking, but in the main, everybody stuck to beer.
3: And there were other ways of passing the time. Jimmy Langley, a guards officer, was approached by his colonel one Friday afternoon. The colonel expressed his delight at watching number three company putting so much effort into a cross-country run. Langley stayed quiet, well aware of what the colonel had really seen. It was almost the whole company having just received their pay, running to the local brothel. And it was a race that nobody seemed to want to lose. Private David Elliott.
6: We'd heard about the brothel area in Lille. Few of us had any experience of sex, and we were keen to go and see. It was called Rue ABC, and it was a narrow street with cobbles. The only lights came from the houses each side, and the whole street was brothels. Inside, we found a dance hall and a bar and the scantily-clad girls who were only interested in getting you to have a drink and to take you upstairs.
3: Lawrence Gregane paints a slightly fuller picture. He'd entered an establishment with another soldier, who happened also to be a part-time preacher.
2: Two quite attractive girls, who looked no more than sixteen, decided we were possible customers and approached us. They were wearing quite decorative little knickers and nothing else. I was watching my lay preacher friend out of the corner of my eye, and he was obviously getting very excited. They pulled down their knickers, backed onto us, and rubbed their not unattractive bottoms against the front of our trousers. I managed to push mine away, but by this time my friend was out of control. He grabbed his girl and departed upstairs at the double. Some half an hour later, he he reappeared, looking as white as a sheet. His first question was, do you think I've caught something?
3: Of course, some really had. And one unlikely hero in the fight against venereal disease was third division commander Bernard Montgomery, two years away from becoming the hero of El Alamein. Monty issued a controversial memorandum. If a man wants to have a woman, let him do so by all means, he wrote, but he must use his common sense and take the necessary precautions against infection, Otherwise, he becomes a casualty by his own neglect, and this is helping the enemy. So it was the army's job, Monty felt, to help soldiers remain disease-free by making condoms available, by providing prophylactic rooms where men could clean themselves, and by teaching soldiers enough French to buy condoms from a chemist and to ask directions to a licensed brothel. Monty's rather frank memo was described as obscene by his corps commander, Allenbrook, but it wasn't withdrawn. I received from Brook a proper backhander, Monty wrote in his memoir, but it achieved what I wanted since the venereal disease ended. So before he beat Rommel, it would seem that Monty defeated the clap. But for all of the unromantic encounters, love really did blossom for a few British soldiers it's hardly surprising, really, when you think how these young men were interacting with local communities for months on end. On the 17th of April, 1940, Bill Hersey of the East Surreys married Augusta, the daughter of a local Estamine owner. Bill didn't speak any French, Augusta didn't speak any English, but it didn't stand in their way. Did their marriage survive? Well, we'll hear more of that later. We heard earlier from John Williams about returning to the magic place where the last generation of British soldiers had fought and died. And because the last war was so recent, there was still a lot to see. Soldiers could walk the old trench lines and they could visit the cemeteries. They were every bit as moved as today's visitors, perhaps more. Modern tourists, after all, don't fear a similar fate. Take the example of Ted Oates of the Royal Army Service Corps. As Ted moved through Belgium, he was given a tour of Ypres by Sergeant Richardson, who had served there in the previous war. The Sergeant took Ted to the in Gate, carved with the names of the Great War Dead with No Known Grave. Sergeant Richardson was himself killed in the weeks to come, and his name is now on the Dunkirk Memorial, the local equivalent of the in Gate for those with no known grave. Ted, though, I am very happy to say, is now a hundred years old, and is in absolutely fine health. He received his card from the Queen last month and I wish him many, many happy returns. But in 1940, Ted was a young man, and to him Sergeant Richardson seemed as old as the hills. He was one of the perhaps surprising number of older men in France with the British Expeditionary Force. Many of them had been called up from the reserve into the Pioneer Corps and then sent to France to do the hard work, the building of railway lines, airfields, pillboxes, whatever else was needed. These Pioneer units quickly built up quite a reputation.
5: In La Treple, we came into contact with a Liverpool company of pioneers and by God, they were a tough crowd. They became our labourers, you could say. A lot of them had been in prison, released on the understanding that they went to France. They had a sergeant major with them, a huge man, 73-year-old, and he used to carry a stick with a big ball on the end and he used to whack them with it when they got out of hand. One of the sergeants thought he was clever and he used to try and embarrass them and make them look small. And one night, they f- found him in a restaurant on his own, having a drink. Took him outside, and they used him as a wheelbarrow. They dragged him down the cobbled streets, face downwards. His head was in for weeks. You wouldn't have known it was him. Only two slits and a little bit of mouth. They were a tough crowd, and they used to look after us. They looked, after, looked on us as young, inexperienced soldiers, and they used to father
3: us. There were many young British men who weren't in France, of course. Parts of the army were still at home. Some were in the Middle East. There were people in reserved occupations, there were those who were medically unfit, and then there were those who pretended to be medically unfit. Jack Brack was a young East Londoner suffering from a heart disease. In October 1939, he was rejected by a medical board and he gained an exemption. Fair enough. But shortly afterwards, he appeared at another medical board, this time pretending to be a local snooker hall owner and he gained that man an exemption too. Word got round locally and Brack was soon impersonating other people, taking care never to appear before precisely the same board twice. All the same, it didn't take too long before he was recognised and he was arrested along with everyone he'd impersonated. Jack Brack was sentenced to three years for offences under the National Service Act. Overall though, young British men who were in France seemed to have appreciated the experience. Disciplinary records revealed very low rates of desertion throughout the period. In fact, after a warning was issued to members of the Middlesex Regiment that troublemakers would be sent home immediately, the regiment's behaviour actually improved very quickly. But the fact is that all good things come to an end, and on the 10th of May 1940, peace was shattered. On this, the same day that Churchill became Prime Minister, The Germans moved into Belgium, as expected. Sergeant Leonard Howard.
7: We were billeted in an estimate quite close to Douai. At four o'clock in the morning on the 10th of May, we were awakened by bombing and went out into the road. We could see the German plane. It flew so low that we could see the pilot. He touched his forehead as he came towards us, then opened up on us with his machine gun. That was our first initiation into real combat. One minute we were saying, why the hell's that plane got black crosses on it? And the next moment we're on the deck.
3: The British moved forward to meet the Germans, reaching the River Dial on the 11th of May, and as troops advanced, their reception from Belgian civilians was just as positive as their reception had been from the French. Captain Gilbert White.
8: We moved into Belgium, and the Belgians were extremely friendly, cheering us like heroes coming to their rescue. They had remembered what being invaded by the Bosch was like, They had invaded them in August 1914 at the outbreak of the Kaisers' War. However, due to the rumours that the war was going to the cities, people thought that they would be much safer in the country, so the roads were jammed. It was extremely difficult to get through, but wherever we went through a village, our welcome was rapturous.
3: The Expeditionary Force's advance into Belgium was led by the armoured cars of 12th Lancers. Two corps held the left of the line, one corps held the right. Private Ernest Leggett.
9: We got to the forest of Marchienne at midday. When it got dark, there came the most moving moment of my whole life. Captain Barclay, the Sergeant Major, and some of the other Sergeants come out with a paraffin lamp. And Captain Barclay he said, Right ho, lads, gather round. I've got something to tell you. We're now at war. As you were marching, you see the bombers coming over. They tried to bomb us, but we're here. He gave us a fatherly talk, and the last words he said were, Now, more than ever before, will your training stand you in good stead. Keep your heads down and the spirits high, and from now on, when you aim your rifle to shoot, you shoot to kill. He then said, best of luck, lads, and after that we formed up and we marched into the darkness.
3: For these young men, the phony war was over. As John Williams says,
1: The phony war was a dream time. I don't know what we expected. We were in an innocent state. We were doing what we were told. And we had our officers, and we knew all our lads, and we thought all was right with the world. When I look back now, I shudder. I could almost burst into tears.
3: Some units saw action very quickly. Humphrey Breeden was a young subaltern in the Royal Ulster Rifles.
6: I was sitting with my batman, looking down a long street piece of road, and I was in a chair reading the newspaper. The crowd of refugees had thinned out, and a colonel of the 15th and 19th Zars came past less snow, but I could expect the enemy to arrive pretty soon. I thanked him very much. He wished me good luck, and I carried on reading my newspaper. A little while later, my batman said, Can you see? I think there's somebody coming. I got my binoculars out and saw a German motorbike and sidecar coming up the road. I told my batman and another soldier to wait a moment or two until these Germans were in reasonable range, and then to open fire before joining me back in front of the bridge. They did this, and then all three of us went back to our platoon position, and told the Royal Engineer NCO to blow the bridge. For the next three days, there was fairly violent fighting, and the Germans did everything they could to break the line in our area. In front of us, to our right, there was a four-story building, but to our left, the ground was completely open. There was a hillside sloping upwards, away from us, covered in what looked like allotments, and the Germans made a big attempt to occupy the building to our right. What played into our hands, rather, was that the Germans proceeded to occupy the allotments. Almost every man in our battalion was a first-call shot, and would recently been issued with bring guns, and our marksmanship really told. The enemy had the usual German helmets, but they were polished, and they showed up very nicely for us to shoot at. They did the usual business of running in ones and twos with a gap between each, but they hadn't reckoned with our marksmanship. The other stupid thing they did, they hid behind these little wooden allotment shelters, not appearing to realise that the bullets could go through the wooden shelters. So he caused a very large number of casualties, and this started to bring them to a halt. The real danger was when they started getting into the large building in front of us, to our right. They started putting snipers on top of it, who could look down into our positions. Very sad to say, my batman was killed by bullets straight through his head, which came from the building. It was clear the Germans were preparing for an assault on our position. I thought there was only one thing for it, to get artillery firing on what we called Uncle Target, It was a system whereby all the guns of the division could be brought to bear on one spot for two or three minutes. The telephone was still working and I telephoned to say, please bring down an uncle target onto a spot approximately 100 yards in front of our position. This meant that the 72 guns of the division would be brought onto the house. I realised that one or two of our shells would probably fall on us, but we reckoned that it would be better to be killed by our own shells than to be overrun by the enemy. The shells came down, only about two fell behind us and none of them fell on our position. The noise was quite staggering for three minutes, and the building in front of us disappeared. After it finished, there was an incredible silence for the enemy for some time, and the only noise one seemed to hear were the slates slithering off roofs in the neighbourhood, but it seemed to put pay to whatever the Germans had been planning for that day.
3: The British defence of the Belgian dial line had begun, but what nobody knew, not the British, the Belgians, or the French, was that this was not the Germans' principal thrust. That was coming to the south, in France. The thrust was to be mounted by an armoured corps led by General Heinz Guderian. With three panzer divisions under him, der Schneller Heinz, speedy Heinz, commanded almost 60,000 men and 22,000 vehicles. And the plan was audacious. In fact, to some German generals, it flew in the face of common sense. It involved an attack at Sedan, in the heavily wooded, hilly, and supposedly impassable Ardennes area, which would then give way to a quick panzer thrust towards the Channel coast. The idea was to cut the British and French forces in two. And it would mean bypassing, completely avoiding, the Maginot Line. The line would remain intact. The French boast would actually remain true. Ils ne passeront pas. On the afternoon of 13th of May 1940, German riflemen and infantrymen crossed the River Meuse, Supported by continuous raids from the air. The heights above the river were taken. Bridgeheads were established and widened. The tanks crossed the following night on bridges constructed by engineers. And by the 16th, the tanks were more than 50 miles beyond Sedan, moving quickly towards the coast. There seemed to be nothing in their way. The French army, taken by surprise, was crumbling. And the British army? Which had only just reached its forward positions was told to start withdrawing, but its members weren't told why. Anthony Rhodes of the Royal Engineers.
10: We got the order to
8: withdraw, but we had no idea what had happened. We were simply told we were to withdraw back to the river Escaut, which meant going back through Brussels and taking up another waterline. I've never forgotten the contrast between the reception on the morning of the 11th. And when we went back the other way, people standing around looking at us in utter dejection.
3: We'd go through a very thick crowd of local people and you'd see a clenched fist being shaken at you, saying, Pourquoi? Pourquoi? They wanted to know why we were running away and leaving, but we could not answer for the simple reason that we didn't know. Many soldiers believed that the retreat was localised. Perhaps their own unit was being removed for some reason. Perhaps it had been misbehaving, or, or perhaps a nearby unit had been overrun. Private Ernest Leggett.
9: I didn't realise that the whole BEF was falling back. I thought we'd be going forward again at a later date. One night we marched 25 miles in the darkness. People have said that you can't march while you're asleep, but I can tell you here and now you can march while you're asleep, because I'd done it. You wake up when you bump into the man ahead of you, or the man behind bumps into you. I remember the devastation of the towns and villages. They'd just been brought to the ground. There was water, smoke and fires in the streets, and the terrible smell of death from the houses. This had all been happening behind us, and we were walking back through it.
3: And it wasn't just soldiers who were retreating. Bombed out of their houses and expecting the arrival of the Germans for the second time in many of their lifetimes, Belgian civilians took to the roads. Hortense de Main was one.
11: The panic on the road was terrific. The panic and the fighting and the screaming. You couldn't believe your eyes. That's beside all the fear you had yourselves. When an aeroplane came along, everyone would jump in a ditch. One particular man. I can still see him. He picked me up underneath one arm And picked my sister up under the other and ran. It was absolute chaos. Half the street was bombed to the ground. And I can still see the face of a soldier, I think he was British, who got a terrible beating because someone shouted that he was a spy. I don't know what happened to him. The police took him away. But why would a German soldier have been wearing a British uniform.
3: At first, the BEF's commander-in-chief, Lord Gort, understood little more than his men. His chief of staff, Henry Poundell, wrote in his diary on the 14th of May, the Germans inexplicably have got across the Meuse. And when Winston Churchill was told that the BEF was withdrawing, he flew to Paris to find out for himself what was going on. Where is the French reserve? he asked General Gamelin, the overall Allied Commander-in-Chief. There isn't one, he was told, and he was appalled. The situation, he wrote after the war, was incomparably worse than we had imagined. The initial British withdrawal to the line of the River Esco was complete by the night of the 19th of May, and on that day Gort and Pownall discussed the Expeditionary Force's options. It could, they decided, take part in an attack to cut off the advancing Germans. It could withdraw south to the line of the River Somme, or it could withdraw northwest towards Dunkirk, where it could be evacuated back to Britain. So it was from this really early point that Gort and his staff were thinking in terms of a possible retreat to Dunkirk. Meanwhile, back home in Britain, there was a general sense of disquiet now that Hitler had finally made his move but that disquiet had a positive corollary as a tidal wave of volunteerism began to sweep the country. People started giving their time and their energy in a communal drive to boost Britain's ability to defend itself. This, for example, was a week that the Secretary of State for War, Anthony Eden, announced the formation of the LDV, the Local Defense Volunteers, a civilian army intended to resist any German invasion. Before long, Churchill would rename it the Home Guard He just considered it more earthy, snappier, but today it's probably best known as Dad's Army. But whatever it's called, a quarter of a million people signed up to serve in it during its first week. Across the Channel, meanwhile, the next stage of the retreat was complete, and behind the River Esco, 2nd Battalion of the Royal Norfolks withdrew into a defensive spot near Calonne. A Company took the central position, its front stretching nearly 800 yards. As the sun rose, with no Germans yet in sight, company commander Captain Peter Barclay, who came from the banking family, spent an hour hunting rabbits. And then, as he recalls dryly, it was time to deal with the other situation. In due course, Germans began appearing on the far bank. They didn't spot the Norfolks, and they began building a bridge across the river. Barclay waited until the enemy were completely preoccupied, And then he blew his hunting horn. It was something he liked to keep with him. The Norfolks opened fire and every German in sight was killed. But then reinforcements came up and the one sided ambush turned into a two sided, ferocious firefight. Barclay was badly wounded, but he wouldn't give up directing the defence. Lying on a door, he continued giving orders as four men carried him around the positions. Hold up on the upper floor of the cement factory overlooking the river, Ernie Leggett was firing away with a Bren gun. Around him were the other members of his section. This is what he remembers.
9: I was looking along the line at our company headquarters when I remember hearing machine gun fire. And I looked along the river and I see a figure I recognised, Sergeant Major Gristark, And he was crawling across the open ground on his elbows with his rifle in front of him. There were at least three other men behind him. They were moving towards a German machine gun nest in front of Arnhem that they were trying to take out. I then saw another German machine gun crew hurrying along and setting up a position behind Gristark so they had a flank view of him. He couldn't see them. I remember him reaching back and throwing grenades. I see his arm coming over. Then I heard the machine gun on the flank firing, but something happened that I had to turn away and I didn't see any more. I later found out that Gristark got a broadside raking into his legs and he won the Victoria Cross for this action. But at the time, it didn't register with me, the extent of what he did. There was a lull in the fighting. Everything became quiet. Out of my section in the inn, there was only myself, two other privates and a lance corporal. Out of 25 of us, we'd suffered heavy casualties and there were no wounded. The others were all dead. We sat down and smoked and talked. I then walked across the floor of this building. and The next thing I knew, I'd hit the stealing. And then I heard a loud bang. i come down and hit the floor. I realised I'd been hit. It was one of those blasted three-inch mortars. My left leg was absolutely numb. My back was numb from the waist down. I couldn't move my legs and all I saw was blood all over the floor. Two others ran across to me. One said, bloody hell, Ernie, you had it. I later found out that a piece of shrapnel about three and a half inches long and an inch and a half wide had gone in through my left buttock and come out through my groin and caused a big cavity. It had gone straight through me. Fortunately, I was numb and I had no pain, but I thought I'd had it. I thought of my home and my family and what they were going to do when they heard the news of my death. I was dragged out and carried down to the downstairs to the railway line. I couldn't walk. All I could do was crawl. But I knew that if I had six inches of cover from the rails, I was safe from rifle fire and machine gun fire. I crawled and I crawled and they were bombing from above and I was being covered with earth. As I was crawling, I was pulling myself along and I became conscious that my hands were bleeding. I was like a wounded animal, determined to get away. It took me ages to get to the company headquarters, and as I was almost at my last gasp, there was one hell of a big explosion, and I was covered with earth, and I said, please, God help me. I don't know how long I was out. I can remember being put on a stretcher in the back of a truck. I was still numb, and we were driving over bumpy ground. I was unloaded, and a medical officer bent over me, and I saw a nun bending over me with one of them big flowery hats that French nuns wear, and the MO was talking French to her, and he got a syringe out of his bag. Just a prick old boy, you see, and I can't remember much else. I woke up in a bed in a ward with other people around me and a nurse said, it's all right, you're okay now, you're in hospital in England. The surgeons had plugged the worst wound all the way from back to the front and said that I would be okay. They told me it was a miracle. They said it was a one in a million chance of me being alive. The next thing I remember, someone touched me and there was my mother by my bedside. She said, how bad is it? I said, I don't know, mother. I'd been in hospital for three or four days when the sister came and said, ''There's someone in the next ward who's ordered that he should see you.'' I asked who it was, and she said, ''Wait and see.'' So they lifted me out and wheeled me in, and I was greeted with, ''Hello, boy, how are you?'' It was Sergeant Major Grestock. He told me that his legs had been amputated from the hip. I noticed that on his bed rail was a line of 12 bottles of ale. It went through my mind that if they were allowing a man in his condition to drink, he must be in a very poor way. And he said, ''Do something for me, boy.'' I said, ''What's that?'' He said, fill this up for me. And I poured beer into a pot with a spout and he held it to his mouth and he just sipped it and said, beautiful, pour me another one in. And I did that every day. I told Gristock that I'd seen what had happened to him and he said, the bastards, but I wiped them out. We talked about the company, the men, about how fortunate we were to get away. We talked about the old days and we did this every day. And then the horrible morning came when they didn't come and get me. And I said to the nurse, you take me through to see my Sergeant Major? And she said, no, sorry, he died.
3: George Gristock's Victoria Cross is on public display now at the Royal Norfolk Regiment Museum in Norwich. On the 20th of May, Schneller Heinz Guderian walked around Amiens, which had now been captured by his first panzer division. The city he decided was very beautiful, but he couldn't stay for long. Later that day, his second division reached Abbeville on the French coast. The Germans had cut the Allies in two. The British Army, the Belgian Army, and the French 1st and 7th Armies were all trapped in a pocket 120 miles deep and 80 miles wide, all of them cut off from the remainder of the French Army to the south. They could now expect attacks from almost every direction. But importantly for the BEF, the Germans hadn't yet taken the channel ports, Boulogne, Calais, Dunkirk. It was at this point that the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, General Ironside, arrived from England at Gort's headquarters. He brought with him an order from London. The British expeditionary force was to attack south-west across the River Somme to join up with the French in the south. Gort was frank with Ironside. He couldn't do it. An attack of this sort would leave numerous British divisions fighting ferocious rearguard actions at the same time as they were advancing into panzer formations, and they'd also have to watch their flanks all the while. Privately, Pownall sent Churchill's hand behind the order. In his diary, he wrote, it was a scandalous, i.e. Winstonian, thing to do, and in fact quite impossible to carry out. All the same, Gort did offer a compromise, a limited counter-attack towards the south, carried out by units of his reserve divisions. After all, some form of attack did make sense. As the Germans drove towards the coast, their flanks were becoming more stretched and more vulnerable, and the German infantry was lagging far behind the motorized formations. So, on the 21st of May, two mobile columns attacked south of Arras. The columns were made up of 2,000 infantrymen and 74 tanks, plus motorcyclists, anti-tank guns, and field guns. Commanding a light tank in the left-hand column was Peter Vaux.
12: We reached a railway line at Danville. Our tanks all lined up on a ridge just short of it. We went up the crest and over the top straight into the side of what we were later to know as Rommel's 7th Panzer Division. It was a most extraordinary situation because they didn't know that we were coming. There were masses of half-tracks and lorries and motorcycles and anti-tank guns on tow and everything worked as it should. The gunners all fired, and the German lorries burst into flames. A German motorcycle was just in front of me, and the driver was trying to start the engine, and he was kicking away with his kickstart, and he couldn't get it going. My gunner was laughing so much that he couldn't shoot the gun. Eventually the German threw the motorcycle into a ditch and ran away, and we hadn't fired on him at all. I came to a crossroads where there was a lorry with a great big G painted on the door. I remember thinking, in the silly way one does, G is for German. And at that moment the driver, who sure enough was wearing a field grey uniform, jumped out of the driver's seat. I said to my gunner, shoot, and he shot the lorry, which burst into flames. Then he swung the turret round and fired at the German soldier, who ran down the street, zigzagging with the tracer bullets flying on either side of him. He disappeared into a garden, and we hadn't hit him. And unbelievably, a woman came out of a house, emptied a bucket into a dustbin, and went back in again. She must have watched the whole thing from her kitchen window, and waited her turn to empty the bucket. I remember some wretched German small weapon, I suppose some two-centimetre thing, fired at us. A blooming projectile went in one side of my turret and out the other, just in front of my gunner and myself. It left two holes, and the gunner and I looked at one another, and without a word he bent down and picked up his small pack, and took out of it a pair of rather smelly socks. He gave one to me, and I stuffed one in my hole, and he stuffed one into his. It seemed somehow a bit better that way. I motored through a lot of our tanks, of which I suppose there must have been 20 or so of all three squadrons. But they weren't moving, they weren't shooting, and the guns were at all angles. Then I saw that some of them had men hanging out of the turrets or out of the driver's seat. Or lying beside the tanks. All these tanks were dead. I told my driver to reverse and I stood up on my seat in the turret so I was exposed from the waist upwards. I was shouting to the driver to do this and that and shouting at the gunner to do the other. What I little knew was that behind me a German soldier was lying on the ground with his rifle resting on a kit bag drawing a bead on my back. I didn't know this but Captain Craycroft did. It wasn't until we got back to England that his gunner told me that Captain Craycroft drew his revolver and shot this man in the throat before he could pull the trigger. A number of our tanks rendezvoused at a crossroads in Ashikor. It was getting dark and we heard coming towards us a tank trundling along, clatter, clatter, clatter. I was in the turret of my tank, and Captain Craycroft was leaning against the running board, smoking. My gunner had been turned out of the tank and replaced by Major Fernie, who was to take over the regiment. Captain Craycroft walked across the crossroads towards this tank. He waved his map board up and down in front of the driver's periscope, and the tank halted. The hatch cover opened, and out popped German helmets. (laughs) It was a German tank! Craycroft ran back as fast as he could to his tank and everybody opened fire. The Germans' shots must have gone over our heads and our shots must have gone over theirs. By now the driver was saying it's a matter of minutes before she runs drive petrol and we found a village and we pulled in spluttering and bailed out the tank. We destroyed it as best we could and we disappeared into an empty house where we spent the night and the next day.
3: By the end of the counter-attack, no ground had been won, and no stated objectives had been achieved. Actually, very little of it had gone according to plan. On the face of it, then, it had been a total failure. And yet it hadn't, because as Vaux has just pointed out, the attack, perhaps more by chance than design, had taken Owen Rommel's 7th Panzer Division by surprise, overrunning parts of it. German gunners couldn't penetrate the armour of the Matilda tanks, and Rommel had only very narrowly avoided a British breakthrough by taking desperate personal control of the defence. The result was to make the Germans very nervous. Rommel was now claiming that the attack had been made by five divisions, rather than by just a handful of battalions, and for some time after the attack, Army Group A commander General von Rundstedt was still very wary of accepting that the danger had actually passed. Yet the counter-attack was sending a very different message now to Lord Gort. He was faced with the realisation that his force simply wasn't strong enough to fight its way out of its predicament, certainly not in the manner proposed by the French. Its best hope of survival was looking increasingly like evacuation. And in London, meanwhile, the War Office was acknowledging the problem. A list of ships that could be pressed into action was drawn up but a memo warned that any evacuation would be reserved for very particular circumstances. One man, of course, wasn't yet thinking in these terms. On the following day, the 22nd of May, Winston Churchill returned to Paris. Speaking to General Vagon, who had now taken over from Gamelan as overall Allied Commander, Churchill promised eight British divisions to take part in an upcoming attack. Pownall's diary is again angry. Raging that Churchill has no conception of our situation and condition. Gort knew that his Prime Minister's promise simply could not be kept. But now, thanks in no small part to the Arras counter-attack, Gort's chances of saving the British Expeditionary Force were just about alive. By a remarkable stroke of luck, the German tanks, sitting like vultures on the heights above Flanders, were about to be stopped in their tracks. How? Well, by the 23rd of May, German Army Groups A and B had, between them, pushed the Allies into a continually decreasing pocket of France and Belgium. They were now close to encircling the British Army, but the panzers were stretched out over a large area. They were ahead of their supply lines, and they were beyond infantry support. And the Arras counter-attack had been a clear warning to the Germans of what might yet happen. And the panzers had other issues too. Many of the tanks were worn out. They needed urgent maintenance. Why risk them by sending them into the marshy canal covered ground around Dunkirk to challenge well, the clearly impressive British Matildas? And what use could they be inside the town? Surely it was better to save them to fight the large French forces that remained south of the River Somme and the River Aisne. These were the reasons that motivated General von Rundstedt to order the panzer tanks to halt but to General Halder, the army chief of staff, this order made no sense at all. The panzers were about to encircle the British army, let them finish the job. And so Halder rescinded Rundstedt's order. And so Halder rescinded Runsted's order. But of course, the ultimate decision rested not with Halder, not with Rundstedt, but with Adolf Hitler. And so Hermann Göring, the Luftwaffe commander, sensed an opportunity to influence Hitler. Goering had been an ally of Hitler's from the early days of the Nazi Party. He understood that Hitler mistrusted the senior army generals. These men were conservatives. They weren't loyal Nazis. Goering warned the Fuhrer that if the generals were allowed to achieve final victory over the British, their success would earn them a prestige with the German people that might even threaten Hitler's position. But if Goering and the loyal Luftwaffe were allowed to finish off the British, well... That would be a triumph for National Socialism. And so on the morning of the 24th of May, Hitler confirmed Rundstedt's order. The panzers remained where they were. They weren't moving. And that order wasn't lifted until the evening of the 26th of May. And they only moved again the following morning. Now, none of this, of course, was known to the retreating British soldiers. They had other concerns. Lance Corporal Lawrence Gregan.
2: I still feel fully justified in what I did in the circumstances I'm about to describe. I was in the battalion orderly room which was a pillbox and two of my lads appeared with a large civilian between them. He was a most revolting looking individual. He stood over six feet tall, must have weighed over 20 stones and was wearing a dark blue suit. His face was large, fat and podgy with close-set little piggy eyes and a small slit of a mouth. Well, the hell's this, and where did you find him?' I asked. "'It was in a cottage overlooking our reserve trenches, "'sitting in a window with a Martini .22 rifle "'and a box of ammunition beside him. "'We'd been getting lads in the reserve trenches "'shot in the head with a small calibre rifle, "'and the window faced that way. "'There were some empty shells on the table, "'and the barrel of the rifle was still warm. "'It had obviously been fired. "'Why didn't you bring the rifle and ammo along as evidence?' Never thought of it, Corporal. We questioned the man who stood and leered at us. We could not get him to say anything. We had already had trouble with Belgian fifth columnists and it was possible that he was one of them. Remembering some of the atrocities they had committed, I was thinking, I'll soon wipe that grin off your face, you bastard. The adjutant had followed all the conversations and tried again. Nothing. Turning to me, he just said, get rid of him. We marched off down a country lane. I turned to the two escorts and said, well, which of you two buggers wants to shoot this bastard? You? No, not me, Corporal. Well, you. No, not me, Corp. You do realise you must have shot some of your friends. Always the bloody same. Leave all the really dirty work to the NCOs. It was hard to say whether this Belgian understood what was being said. It was poker face the entire time. But at this point, some German bombers flew over and he jerked his thumb in their direction, and uttered the only word we got out of him. He said, Bosh, and gave a kind of insane giggle. It was the last laugh of his life. Pay attention. You will march ahead with the prisoner. I shall give the order. Prisoner and escort, halt. He understands nothing, or so it would seem. He will not halt, and I shall shoot him. Understand? Yes, Corporal. And so it was. A single shot through the heart and another through the side of the head for the coup de grace. I sent my lads off on their respective duties and reported back to the adjutant. Prisoner tried to escape, sir. I had to shoot him. Did you bury the body? No, sir. Rolled into the ditch at the side of the road. Well, make sure your men bury it properly. Yes, sir. But there was no time for such niceties. Almost at once we were moving out, retreating still further. I really disliked what I did, but I felt justice had to be done.
3: Despite the lifting of the Halt Order, a remarkable stroke of fortune for the Allies, the pocket continued to shrink. On the 25th of May, Boulogne fell to the Germans, and that night the War Cabinet Defence Committee ordered the men of the British garrison in Calais to hold the town at all costs. Edward Watson of the King's Royal Rifle Corps was one of these men. He was holed up in the cellar of a house as the Germans came closer.
10: The fellas went to get some wine and they really started drinking it. I'd never tasted wine before, I didn't like it very much, this red stuff. Tasted very bitter. We were drinking out of bowls, there were no glasses, and an officer said, you can drink as much as you like, but if you're drunk, then I'm going to kill you. I wanted to go to the toilet. I was really bursting, and it was outside in the open. There was mortar fire going on outside, but after a while, I really couldn't stand anymore, and I had to run out. I found the loo and opened the door and found a dead Frenchman sitting on it. I promptly slammed the door, ran back inside and did it in one of the corners of the room. Some Germans came around the corner with an anti-tank gun and we were 100 yards from the angle and we could see them behind the shield. They were holding their guns and we were sitting in a beautiful position. I said to the officer, what do we do? This is your job, he said. I was an accurate shot. You must kill because if you miss, they'll know where it's coming from, he said. The position of my windowsill was such that I could rest my rifle on it and get a very good aim. It was a bit frightening at first, but after a while it felt quite fun just to kill them. I vividly remember the looks on the faces of the fellows you hadn't killed, who couldn't work out where they was coming from. I shot four or five before they pulled the gun away. The Germans started coming up the street and our officer gave the order that it was every man for himself. I asked him what he meant. He said, you can do what you like. The thing is to get away, no one's in charge. I said, really? Yes, he said, but then he looked at me and said, I want you to come with me. No, I said, I want to go on my own. He said, you come with me. So we went out the back of the house and the German snipers were going at us, but we got over the wall, went into another house and there was a German sniper sitting at the window with his back to us. My officer shot him straight away. I'd never seen it before I such close quarters. There were no questions, what are you are doing? Just bang. We were making our way to what we thought were the docks and the hope of finding a boat when we were cut off. We couldn't make our way any further. My officer told me to tear all our papers out. The Germans started calling out, Tommy, for you, war is over. They must have been taught to say this. Uh, we were wrestled up quickly. The Germans were very rude. Oh, I didn't know if I was going to be shot. They went through my pockets, then they sent us back behind their lines. At first, I was very impressed with the German soldiers. They looked professional compared to us. But after we'd been marched to the rear, we saw their reserves. And these reserves looked like something from the Crimean War.
3: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: wasn't the same
10: German army we'd just seen. It was all horses and carts or wiggledy-piggledy.
3: Once the fighting had stopped in Calais, Dunkirk then became the only possible British exit point. By now, Lord Gort had come to the painful decision to withdraw the entire British expeditionary force there and then to evacuate it back to England. And he made this decision without the approval of his French and Belgian allies. He made it without the approval of Churchill and the politicians back home. It was a lonely, brave decision, and its consequences are very much with us today. So troops were told to make for Dunkirk. Many had no idea at all where this was. To a few, it sounded like it must be in Scotland. Many units were still together, but others were separated now into small groups, and as they piled back, they were being protected by their comrades. Between Comines and Ypres, Lance Corporal John Linton, of the 1st Ox and Bucks, was told that his company must hold its position to the last man as the retreating hordes passed by. On the corridor's other flank, Robert Brown, of the 2nd Royal Norfolks, was holding out on La Bazet Canal. And once the halt order was rescinded, the defending units were confronted by not one, but three panzer divisions. Soldiers retreating, meanwhile, found themselves in dense traffic jams made up of civilians, as well as other soldiers. Others, though, found themselves alone and disorientated. Sometimes they used German propaganda leaflets with their crude maps to guide them to the coast. Dropped by bombers in large exploding canisters, these leaflets were also pressed into action, so to speak, as toilet paper. Sometimes the men found themselves driving in vehicles, which they were eventually forced to ditch and destroy. Sometimes they just walked, and a few had found still other means of transport, including horses. Some came under brutal fire, others didn't. They ate and drank whatever and whenever they could. Sometimes they didn't at all. Sometimes they came under attack. Sometimes they didn't. They ate and drank whatever and whenever they could. Sometimes not at all. They were in every state and condition. And you're about to hear from a number of these men,
10: from a variety of units. All the way up to Popringe, we were attacked by Dorniers and Messerschmitts. At Popringe, they slunk off and then you could see Jerry's tanks three or four hundred yards away coming round the bend of the hill. They started firing over open sights. After that, all these bombers came and dropped their shit on us. God, what a bloody mess. The population of Popringe was only five or six hundred and I don't think there were two bricks left standing, one on top of the other. We got out of there, and the three of us set off for Dunkirk on foot. The other nine were left behind, and what happened to them, nobody knows. It was about 90 miles to Dunkirk, and you don't bloody sleep. You had to keep going. We had to pinch hens, ducks, pigs, sheep, potatoes. We were living off the land.
2: The irregular meals and shortage of food played havoc with the bowels. Quite appalling. Normally I'm very regular and my bowels are very good, but I don't think I had a proper meal and I can't honestly remember having a bowel movement all the way back to Dunkirk.
8: <laughs> I passed some gunners sitting on the side of the road. One of them looked at me and said, I know you. I looked at him and I said, I don't know you. You're caught in a girl in Brook Hill Road, Woolwich, he said. Oh, that's right. I said, how do you know that? Well, that's where the married quarters of the Royal Artillery are, he said. And when I was on guard duty there, I saw you kissing in the doorway. <laughs> She's got lovely open hair. That's what you said. As we marched along, we heard the sound of music coming from one of the gardens. It was a piano going like the clappers. We investigated
13: and there were three or four soldiers sitting round a piano with the shells flying all over the place.
14: We came across a man and wife on the road. The man was pushing his bicycle with an unbelievable assortment of parcels on it and his wife was heavily pregnant. Because of standing orders, we were told on no account have anything to do with refugees, but we couldn't leave this woman. We stopped, put her on our lorry, and told our husband we would leave her at a convent we'd spotted early in the day. We drove off, but we were still in open country when a muffled shout came from the back of the lorry, and my sergeant shouted to stop. I pulled up, and the sergeant shouted, "'Get yourselves a smoke, lads!' "'What the hell was he doing?' What was going on? I was there with the rest of the lads at the side of the road, smoking and trembling. My nerves were sticking a foot out of my body. I was thinking, what's behind that line of trees? Is it Jerry? Do you think he's training his guns on us? Bloody hell! Then it happened. It was like the cry of a vixen fox. But it came from the back of our lorry. It was a newborn baby girl. One of our lads who was very keen on horticulture and knew the Latin names called a Viola Tricolor Wild Pansy. It was a sort of oasis among everything. It certainly took my mind off the things I'd seen and done.
4: When we got to the Dunkirk perimeter five or six kilometers from Dunkirk we had to leave all our vehicles. They were bombing and strafing all the roads into Dunkirk and the sergeant in command told us to leave them and if we could blow them up. We blew up four or five with hand grenades.
2: By now I had got a badly infected wound scabies and feet that resembled raw liver. From lying in filth, my uniform was devoid of its khaki colour. It varied from brown, black, grey, to dark red blood colour. From the base of my spine down to the back of my legs into my boots was a continuous mass of congealed blood. I had a beard and was dirty beyond description.
7: We arrived at the outskirts of Dunkirk at five o'clock in the afternoon, having walked and run forty miles in sixteen hours. Occasionally We hadn't been able to move because we were being attacked. Survival was the main object in everyone's mind, but I remember a warrant officer walking down the road dressed just in his knee breeches and service dress jacket and cap. Tears were streaming down his face and he said, I never thought I'd see the British Army like this.
3: Many men, of course, failed to make it back to Dunkirk. Some were captured and some were killed. But an unfortunate minority were first captured and then killed, or more accurately, murdered. In a village with the ironic name of Le Paradis, 99 men of 2nd Norfolk's were captured by SS Totenkopf Division. They were lined up against a barn where company commander Fritz Nochlein ordered them to be machine gunned. Anybody thought to be still alive was then bayoneted and shot. Remarkably, two men survived and they gave evidence against Nochlein at a 1948 war crimes trial. Nochlein was found guilty and executed. And this wasn't a lone incident and it wasn't only the SS, the Nazi party organisation, that was guilty of atrocities at this time. At Winkt, near Ghent, German army soldiers murdered up to a hundred civilians while their family members were made to watch. And at Wormut, men of the Royal Warwickshire and Cheshire regiments, as well as a number of artillerymen and French soldiers, were rounded up by members of the 1st SS Panzer Division. They were led into a field and then marched into a barn. Gun O'Brien Fay was one of them.
4: There must have been about a hundred men in the barn, and then the Germans surrounded it and threw in hand grenades. It was apparent that they were going to murder us all. I suppose the men in front took the full force of the blast, but we all went down like a pack of cards. I heard the noise of the explosion, and it hadn't damaged me, but we were terrified. Then the German officer said, Rouse, five men! And five men were taken out, And there were five Germans in front with rifles, and the officer counted out, Ein, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, and they were shot. I was already wounded, and the feeling I had was that this was so unfair, so futile, and also hopeless, and I decided that I would be one of the next five. I thought to myself, I can't suffer this any longer. I'm going to get this over with as quick as I can. The officer said, out another five men and I got up and went out a boy helped me and we went out and we took our positions I was number five and they turned us all round and I was shot in the back it was like a punch like a severe blow and it knocked me over and I suppose I passed out when I finally came to it had all gone quiet in the barn and I could feel this bubbling in my lung but I realised that I wasn't dead. I was about 20 yards from the barn, and blood had pumped all over my jacket, and my shirt was soaked, and I could only use my left elbow and right knee. I crawled back into the barn, and there were men in there. Most were dead, and some were dying. They told me what had happened. After the Germans had left, some people had gone to get help, but nobody had come. I lay there with my head on someone's body, and we talked. What we were more interested in than anything else was quenching our thirst. There was no water or food anywhere. This was the evening of Tuesday, 28th May, and we lay there all day Wednesday and all day Thursday. I actually had a packet of cigarettes in my pocket, which I passed over, because there was no way I could smoke with my lung. I think at times I lost consciousness, and at others I was delirious, because the time passed very quickly. I think we all actually wanted to die. I prayed that I would be taken because I was so low. One thing I will never forget was one chap who was sitting up, propped against the side of the barn. He'd found a clip of rifle bullets in his pocket, and he was holding one against his head, trying to detonate it with another. On the Friday morning, there were six of us still alive in the barn, and we heard some activity, and it was some more German soldiers. We thought, well, that's it now. I didn't realise that there were actually rules for war. But these soldiers were ordinary Wehrmacht and not the SS regiment who had captured us. These chaps came, and they spoke to us, and we couldn't understand them. One of them spoke a bit of French, and I could speak my schoolboy French, so that's how we conversed. He thought we must have made a futile stand in the barn, and he asked why there were no guns or helmets. I told him what had happened, and he was appalled. He said, you were captured by the SS, and they don't take prisoners. It's very, very harrowing. It's something I'd never spoken much about over the years. But in fact, this massacre changed my attitude to life. For the better. One expression I've said many times is, they can't shoot you for it. Most of what I do, what most of us do, pales into insignificance besides that. Nothing else like that is going to happen to me again. It couldn't possibly.
3: Eighty-one men died in that barn. Another nine died of their wounds over the next few days. Unlike Nochline, the commander of the unit responsible, Wilhelm Munker, never faced charges. Brian Fay, meanwhile went on to become a hugely successful composer and musical director. He worked with Ella Fitzgerald and Shirley Bassey, he wrote the score for numerous films, and he wrote this, which you almost certainly know, and which you'll be humming later. For the evacuation to have any chance at all, The area around the town, the perimeter, had to be defended from enemy attack just as stoutly as the corridor. And the man given the hugely important job of finding and organising the defenders was Edward Lawson, in peacetime the general manager of the Daily Telegraph. The perimeter had to be large enough to protect the town and port of Dunkirk, the beaches leading along the coast, and the growing number of soldiers inside, but it also had to be small enough to be defended by the men available and it had to take advantage of the canal lines, which formed ready-built obstacles. French troops would man the sector from the port of Dunkirk to the west, while British troops would defend the area from Dunkirk to Newport in the east. Jimmy Langley, of the 2nd Coldstream Guards, recalls being approached by his colonel while on the retreat. "Marvelous news, Jimmy, the best ever!'' said the colonel. Langley wondered what could be so wonderful in the circumstances. And the answer was that the battalion had been chosen to defend an area between Burges and Honshout on the perimeter. So the company duly dug in along the canal by a cottage which would house the company's headquarters and over the coming days Langley watched as a continuous procession of British and French soldiers in all conditions and states of mind crossed the canal and moved on into Dunkirk. He remembers firing furiously at one particular aircraft but it passed on serenely. Fortunately, as it turned out, it was a British Lysander carrying Lord Gort on an aerial tour of the defences. After a while, the Germans were spotted. Langley, Major McCorkadale and their men settled down for a fight. Everybody understood that it was going to be a fight to the death. Over the course of the day, the attacks grew heavier and more frequent, and then, during a lull, Langley and McCorkadale, were approached by the British captain commanding the company on the right. The captain said that he was proposing to withdraw. Major McCorkadale said, I order you to stay put and fight it out. These were, after all, the orders. But the captain said that he had overriding orders from his colonel to withdraw when he thought fit. So McCorkadale pointed at a tree. You see that big poplar tree on the road with a white milestone beside it, he said. The moment you or any of your men go back beyond that tree, we will shoot you." The captain began to argue, but he was interrupted. "'Get back,' said McCorkadale, or I will shoot you now and send one of my officers to take command." As the captain walked back to his position, McCorkadale picked up a rifle and he handed another to Langley. "'You will shoot to kill,' said McCorkadale, the moment he passes that tree. You understand?' For a while, the captain stood near the tree, conferring with two men. Langley and McCorkadel took aim, and then the captain walked beyond the tree. At that moment, the captain fell beyond sight, and his companions ran in the opposite direction. The company stayed, and it fought. And a while later, while making a lost stand in the cottage, Langley was wounded. Taken prisoner, he escaped from hospital, and he arrived back in England the following year. Yet for all the efforts of those defending the perimeter, there was a real danger that political discussions taking place in London would leave them counting for nothing. On the 28th of May, Winston Churchill, speaking to his old friend, Sir Roger Keyes, told him that Lord Gort didn't rate very highly the British Expeditionary Forces' chances of survival. Churchill then spoke to Parliament, saying that the current situation was extremely grave. But that Britain should be confident in her power to make her way through disaster and grief to the defeat of her enemies. From the chamber, Churchill went directly into meetings, firstly with his war cabinet and then with his wider cabinet. These meetings were, quite simply, the most important political discussions to take place in Britain over the last hundred years. With the War Cabinet, Churchill discussed Italy's desire to act as broker in peace negotiations between Britain and Germany. Foreign Minister Lord Halifax believed that Britain ought to consider making concessions which didn't compromise her independence. After all, better terms might be offered now than in three months' time, when the situation might have worsened. No, said Churchill, Hitler's peace terms would put Britain completely at his mercy whenever they were offered. What was wrong, asked Neville Chamberlain, with making it clear that Britain would fight to the end to preserve her independence, but would consider decent terms if they were offered? Two responses came. Both made good points and together they underline why the Prime Minister and his wartime deputy made an unlikely but good team. The first response was pure Winston Churchill. Nations that went down fighting rose again, but those that surrendered tamely were finished. The second response was pure Clement Attlee. Once negotiations began, it would be impossible to rally the morale of the British people. Very simple, very clear and very true. Churchill then met with his full cabinet. Many of its members, men like committed socialists Herbert Morrison and Ernest Bevin, could never have imagined serving under Churchill. But they all now listened as Churchill set out the dire situation in France and the likelihood the Germans would attempt an invasion of Britain. They listened as he admitted having considered the possibility of negotiating with Hitler, and he had considered it. Over the previous two days, he had offered some hope to Halifax, but he now warned that any peace would turn Britain into a slave state. "'If this long island history of ours is to end at last,' he said, "'let it end only when each of us is choking in his own blood upon the ground.'" The response from the cabinet was overwhelming. "'There were loud cries of approval all round the table,' wrote Hugh Dalton. "'No one expressed even the faintest glimmer of dissent.'" I'll take this opportunity to remind you what Oliver Littleton said about Churchill. He said, "'Churchill made you feel as though you were a great actor in great events.'" Leadership is dulling the rational faculty and substituting enthusiasm for it. In 1940, on a careful evaluation of the odds, nobody would have moved. And that's precisely what Churchill had done. He inspired the cabinet, he inspired parliament, he inspired the nation to fight. But actually, the future of the nation was no longer in the nation's hands. It was about to be decided by other factors. In Dunkirk. In overall charge of the evacuation was a 57 year old Vice Admiral, Bertram Ramsay. His headquarters were in the Dynamo Room at Dover Castle. This gave the evacuation its codename, Operation Dynamo. Ramsay's balcony overlooked both the harbour and, in the distance, the French coast. From here, he oversaw Operation Dynamo as it officially began just before 7 pm on Sunday, the 26th of May. At first, hopes for its success were modest. Churchill believed that 30,000 men might be rescued. Ramsay hoped for 45,000, and it's worth remembering those numbers. Inside Dunkirk, at this point, the atmosphere was pretty rough. It was a noxious mix of relief, shame and aggression. The soldiers were relieved at having passed through the perimeter. They were ashamed at having been comprehensively beaten and groups of men were said to be prowling the town in an angry mood of violence. Ernest Holdsworth, a lifetime teetotaler, remembers drinking himself senseless on arrival. He woke up to find himself in a hotel cellar, surrounded by this nightmarish scene of British, French and Senegalese troops all slumped together, singing, crying and vomiting. Holdsworth describes it as worse than Dante's Inferno. Alfred Baldwin recalls a similar scene.
8: I passed an in the town. It was absolutely crowded with French and British soldiers, but the windows were all smashed and there were lights on. It was absolutely chock-a-block and these drunken Herberts were spilling out into the pavement and the road. It stuck out because this was the only
3: light in the area except from the fires. On the 27th of May, Captain William Tennant came to Dunkirk. Tennant's job was to organise the arrival of ships and the embarkation of soldiers, but his first challenge on shore was to face down a mob of British soldiers who came at him with their rifles. He managed to defuse the situation by offering a ringleader a drink from his flask. Tennant then made his way to Bastion 32, the French headquarters. There, he was told that the harbour had been so badly damaged by Luftwaffe bombing that it couldn't be used for evacuating troops. So troops would have to be taken off the 10 miles of beaches that stretch from the town to Le Pan. Now this was a disaster. Dunkirk was the only port available to the British, and it was now gone. And Tennant's problems didn't stop there. Large ships couldn't actually get close to the shore to pick up soldiers, and there was an almost total lack of small boats in Dunkirk to bring the men from the beaches to the large ships. And on top of all this, the Germans were expected to enter Dunkirk in between 24 and 36 hours. So what could Tennant possibly do? Well, first of all, he wired a message to Dover from Bastion 32, asking for every available boat and ship to be sent to Dunkirk. Then his naval party started rounding up the soldiers who'd taken shelter from the bombing in the cellars around the town. They were all led to the beaches. But by far his most important intervention came that night. That's when he noticed that whereas Luftwaffe had smashed the inner harbour, it hadn't really damaged the outer harbour. Specifically, the two long arms, the East and West Moles, two huge recently built breakwaters intended to prevent the harbour from silting up. Tennant focused particularly on the East Mole. It stretched a mile out to sea. It had a wooden walkway on top that could fit four men walking abreast. It was easily accessible from the beaches. Well, that was the good news. The bad news was that it simply wasn't intended to be a jetty. It was subject to treacherous currents. It had a 15-foot tidal drop, and there was no obvious way to moor a ship alongside it. And yes, it did have a walkway, but the walkway had an unbroken protective rail to prevent people from falling off. It just wasn't a jetty. But Tennant could see no alternative. So early on the morning of the 28th of May, a large passenger ship, Queen of the Channel, was brought alongside the mole. 950 men managed to embark from the Mole before the ship returned to Dover. Tennant's idea actually worked, and other ships were quickly ordered to the Mole. But tying up to it and bringing men aboard was rarely easy, as John Crosby, a sub-lieutenant on HMS Oriole, noted.
13: As two ships came alongside each other on the Mole while under heavy shelf, the two skippers recognised each other and inquired after each other's health. It struck me as rather absurd to inquire after anyone's health when under shell fire, as we were. We got gangways and ladders ashore and lashed them to the railings on the mole. It was low water and they were very steep. In many places the mole had been hit with shells and breaches made, but it had been fixed up in every case with boards and planks.
3: The evacuation was now seriously underway. But bear in mind, this was all a quickly conjured improvisation. That's the key to this story. Nobody was expecting this to happen. And the British often like to think of themselves as talented improvisers, at their best when presented with a desperate problem. Well, according to Major William Reeves, this was a desperate problem. Dunkirk was noise and chaos. There was
8: black smoke blowing over the place, aeroplanes coming over and dropping bombs, huge crowds of people moving towards the docks, thousands of soldiers were on the beach, people were trying to organise and marshal men to certain areas, trying to get as many people as possible onto destroyers and other ships that managed
3: to pull into the quayside. Utter chaos. Perhaps it was. But if order could be improvised out of the chaos, then something could yet be achieved. If the troops holding the Germans back on the perimeter could keep going for a while. If the weather stayed good and the sea stayed calm. If plenty of ships and boats could be pressed into service. If the mole could be kept safe and intact. If the Luftwaffe could be kept at bay. If all these things could happen, then a few tens of thousands of soldiers might be brought home. But that was a lot of ifs. So what of the ships and boats? Well, the majority of men were brought home on Royal Navy ships and large civilian steamers and ferries. Ernie Eldred was a leading seaman on board HMS Harvester, a destroyer.
8: I don't think destroyers have ever carried as many men as we did. Must have been hundreds, crammed in every space you could think of. We just set them down anywhere we possibly could and gave them drinks and cigarettes. The sick base staff was going round the ship looking after the injured, but there were men everywhere, down a Stoke Hole in the engine room, mess decks, upper deck. Only place we couldn't have them was around the guns. We had to leave space so our gunnery people could operate.
3: Thomas King, meanwhile, was on a minesweeper.
8: On our first crossing, the weather wasn't very pleasant. It was what we call crinkly in the Navy. We could do 15 knots. So it took us two and a half to three hours to get from Dover to Le Pan. We went as a fighting ship, which we always were and we just didn't know what to expect. We didn't know if we were going to anchor off or just steam around. Eventually, we did anchor. But I shall always remember that on the way into the beaches, our captain held a ship that was coming out with troops and said, how many are there? The reply he got back was there's bloody thousands of them.
3: By the end of Monday, the 27th of May, the first full day of the evacuation, 7,669 soldiers had been brought home there was a lot of work still to be done if the war was to be kept alive. And even though more and more soldiers were now passing into Dunkirk, this was absolutely no assurance of safety. On shore, they were liable to be bombed by stukas and level bombers and shelled from beyond the perimeter. And at sea, they still faced these hazards, but also contact and magnetic mines, as well as motor torpedo boats and U-boats. Some of these dangers could be addressed, The original evacuation route between Dunkirk and Dover, Route Z, was short but dangerous due to batteries of German guns along the coast. A safer route, Route Y, was introduced, but this turned out to be very long. So a compromise route, Route Z, which was relatively short with a one-way trip of 54 miles and relatively safe as it avoided shore batteries, was introduced. But a very real danger were the mines dropped at night by the Luftwaffe. Now these were floated down into the sea by parachute and there were two types. There were contact mines detonated when a ship pressed one of its ugly protruding horns and the more insidious magnetic mines that were primed to detonate when a steel-hulled ship passed over. These magnetic mines were very heavily laid and they might have killed tens of thousands of men during Operation Dynamo. In fact, they might even have changed the story of the evacuation had it not been for a little known man named Charles Goodeve. Goodeve was a boffin who worked for the Admiralty and he'd come up with two methods for keeping ships safe from magnetic mines. First, he developed a method for sweeping the evacuation routes. Two ships would sail parallel to each other along the route, each dragging a long electric cable. The magnetic field between the cables would detonate mines safely when no ships were over them. And his second method was even cleverer. He made ships impervious to magnetic mines by wiping them. This meant passing a large electric cable up and down the ship's side, and it meant that the ship's magnetic field was counteracted. It might as well not have existed. He called this degaussing partly in honour of a scientist named Gals, and partly because it rhymed with de-lousing, but whatever he called it, it could be done quickly and cheaply. 400 ships were degaused in just three days leading up to Dynamo, and another thousand were treated in the days that followed. The result was that only two ships were lost to magnetic mines over the entire period of Operation Dynamo. By the morning of Wednesday the 29th of May, the number of men evacuated had risen to just over 25,000, and it was growing. Despite the apparent problems of using the mole, the mole was working. Six hundred men were able to board a destroyer in just half an hour, and at high water mark, sixteen good sized ships could fit alongside. But on that Wednesday, there were problems with the mole. Up until then, a blanket of smoke had sat over the town. It came from a burning oil facility. But the wind changed direction. And the smoke was cleared and on top of that there was no cloud cover and this meant that for the first time the Luftwaffe was able to target the Mole. That afternoon Crested Eagle came alongside the Mole. Crested Eagle was a Thames paddle steamer fitted with a telescopic funnel so that she could fit under London Bridge. Her job was usually to take London day-trippers down the river to Southend and Clacton but now Fitted with two anti-aircraft guns, she was doing something more ambitious and much more dangerous. That Wednesday afternoon, she sat on the seaward side of the Mole when the Stukas attacked. This was the third Stuka attack of the day, and it was brutal. The Mole itself was hit, as was Fenella, a paddle steamer similar to Crested Eagle, which sank at her mooring. A naval destroyer HMS Grenade meanwhile was struck by several bombs and as she blazed desperate efforts were made to cast her off to stop her sinking and blocking an entire section of the mole. Now many of the soldiers on Grenade were moved over to Crested Eagle who hadn't been hit. So Crested Eagle cast off carrying hundreds of troops on her upper deck and wounded men below decks. But as she headed east parallel to the shore she was attacked by another wave of Stukas. A sailor on board later said it felt as though the ship was picked up and shaken by an invisible hand. He watched a lieutenant running past him, and the lieutenant was recognisable only by his hat because the skin had been burned off his face. Crested Eagle's captain managed to run her aground near Bray Dunes, and soldiers on the beaches watched amazed as this ship, burning red-hot, suddenly joined them on the shore, and in fact she's still there, a skeleton visible at low tide. She's nowadays visited by mussel pickers and by people who want to pay their respects to the 300 men who died on board her. By the morning of Thursday the 30th of May, more than 47,000 men had been rescued. This is Humphrey Breeden of the Royal Ulster Rifles, whom we last met defending the Dial Line in Belgium.
6: You saw the most extraordinary sights on the beaches, little groups of British soldiers sitting on the sand, as though they were at a holiday resort, playing cards while Messerschmitts flew up and down. You could see the bullets hitting the sand one after the other down the beach, and these soldiers were saying he can't shoot very straight, when the bullets had missed them by a few yards. When we got down to the mole at Dunkirk, the commanding officer said that he understood that there was a boat that should take all of us off. We saw an Arleman Man paddle steamer moored alongside the mole, which was rocking to and fro because of the bombs dropping in the harbour, and we started getting on board. There was dead men lying across the gangplank, and we stepped over him gingerly. Gradually managed to get my company into little corners, and then I sat myself. After a little time, I saw a man in a white coat walking about and stepping over people lying around. I wondered, is this by any chance a steward? I beckoned him, and I said, excuse me, are you a steward? Yes, sir, he said. Can I do anything for you? Well, would it be possible to produce a glass of beer for me, or if you can't, a glass of water? Yes, sir, he said, by all means, but you do know the rule, sir. I can't supply you with alcohol until we're three miles out. Now, how could we lose the war with people like this around? I was taken to St Mary's Hospital in Sidcup. For three days, I hardly knew what went on. They treated my wound, which had turned rather nasty, and they helped me to get rid of scabies, and what have you. I was partially blind, which gave me an excellent excuse for putting my hand up the back of a nurse's skirt. I was horribly undernourished, and later the day told me I slept for 36 hours. Immediately I got home. I had nightmares about people attacking me, and if unexpectedly woken up in the night, I'd quite often take up a fighting position instinctively. It went on for three or four years, but it doesn't happen now.
3: Albert Nason was a cook on board Medway Queen, where the clientele seems to have been a bit rougher.
13: Suddenly there was a crush at each galley door, with innumerable khaki-clad arms, many dripping wet, waving billy cans, mugs and mess tins at us. The hubbub of voices was clamorous and insistent. These were not peckish men. These were starving animals, most of them too desperately hungry and thirsty to be polite. Someone opened the starboard half-door and they started to flood for service right into the galley, then trying to exit from the other door. Sec and I were serving as fast as we could, but were getting shoved back and forth and could scarcely manage.
3: Some passenger ships have been converted into hospital ships. These were painted white with large red crosses, but according to John White, a medical officer on board Isle of Guernsey, this colour scheme didn't deter German attacks. It seemed rather to attract them, making the hospital ships sitting ducks. A member of Queen Alexandra's Imperial Nursing Service was on board a hospital ship. This is what she remembers.
0: We moored alongside the northeast side of the mole, The quay was much broken and on fire in places. The patients were embarked with no gangway, just lifted over the ship's side. The ship's officers and crew, stewards and Royal Army Medical Corps personnel all acted as stretcher-bearers and carried the patients up the length of the quay under machine-gun fire from the air. The naval officer in charge on shore was so calm one literally did not realise the aerial battle that was going on all the time. We put the patients to bed as far as possible, and then made up beds on the floor. We did their dressings, which of course had not been done for a long time, and made them comfortable and fed them. And then they slept all the way back. One of our orderlies got left behind carrying stretchers, but he returned to the unit after five days."
3: Nora Clements was also a Quaim sister, but she was working ashore.
0: There was one young man with a neatly trimmed fair moustache and a quiff of very fair hair, He was only partly in this world, for a mortar-shell had removed his leg and shattered his hip. He had had what we call a hind-quarter amputation. He had also lost part of his colon. He was suffering acutely. Morphine had not helped. As I approached, his eyes looked searchingly into my face, and he made a feeble attempt to move his position. A doctor came to my side and said, in a low voice— Give him heroin, sister. I knew that this was one patient who would not leave France. An hour later, I saw him lying there, arms now by his sides, completely relaxed, lost in a dream world where the lotus eaters smiled and pain was never known.
3: By the end of Thursday, the 30th of May, the number of men evacuated stood at 126,606. That's a pretty sizable number. Yet when Captain Tennant dined with Lord Gort that evening at Gort's headquarters, Gort made a surprising, perhaps even offensive, statement. He said that while the army had fallen back intact, the Navy was now making no real effort to help it escape. Brigadier Lee, Gort's Deputy Chief of Staff, insulted Tennant further by speaking of the ineptitude of the Navy. Now, it was true there still weren't enough small boats to ferry men from the beaches to the larger ships moored offshore, but even that situation was improving. On this day, for the first and in fact only time, more troops were actually embarked from the beaches than from the mole. So, what was it really like on the beaches? Captain Anthony Rhodes.
8: Towards early morning, great queues of men formed to go to the water's edge, where at about four o'clock, out of the darkness, We saw boats coming in. Nobody told us what to do, but it seemed a decent thing to get into the queue and not to try and jump it.
3: But Arthur Jocelyn's experience was very different when he brought his Thames barge close into shore. Well, the the soldiers
8: weren't used to boats. They were all rushed to get on board. We, We could have capsized at any moment. An officer, he stood up in the bows, he got his revolver out and he said... I'll shoot the first man who makes a move before I give you permission aboard. You will do it in an orderly manner. <laughs> he stood there with his revolver. Well, we got about, oh, I don't know, 50 on board. Oh, they were in such a state, they just lay down anywhere. A couple of them
3: threw their rifles overboard and said, we shan't want these any more." <laughs> Leonard Howard of the Royal Engineers witnessed an even more appalling scramble.
7: I saw British troops shoot other British troops. On one occasion, a small boat came in, and they piled aboard it to such a degree that it was in danger of capsizing. The chap in charge of the boat decided that unless he took some action, it would, so he shot a hanger-on at the back of the boat through the head. It probably saved those chaps on the boat, but I hoped I'd never be called upon to do that. I think he did the right thing, but it was awful to see.
3: 23-year-old Vic Viner was one of the Navy's beachmasters at Dunkirk. He was sent to Bray Dunes to make sure that soldiers queued in an orderly fashion. His job was to prevent incidents like those we've just heard about from taking place, and he was given a revolver and told to use it if anybody misbehaved. Over a period of several days, he was forced to draw his gun three times, once against an officer who jumped the queue, but each time the troublemaker backed down, so he was never forced to use it. Clearly, there was a lot of anxiety and fear inside Dunkirk. So how did people react? Well, many prayed. There were a lot of impromptu church services held on the beaches, sometimes broken up by shelling or Stuka attacks. In fact, one padre brought salvation for his men in very unusual circumstances.
13: We managed to secure a lift out towards the destroyers in what I'd call a whaler, manned by four soldiers of the Royal Engineers who were doing the rowing. And I got the platoon of 30 men into this boat, with another 10 including an army padre I'd never seen before who sat in the middle of the boat. We set off in the gathering dusk and we were about 400 yards away from a destroyer when suddenly it up anchored, swung round and started off towards England. The pargey leapt to his feet and shouted, Lord, Lord, why hast thou forsaken us? We were so overloaded that with every stroke of the oars, water lapped gently over the sides. But when the pargey leapt to his feet, the boat rocked and water poured in. With one accord, everyone yelled, sit down! That great sound echoed across the water to the destroyer, which turned round and came and
3: picked us up. Another approach to fear was to hide from it. People who became known as dune-dwellers made themselves temporary homes in the sand, refuges in which they tried to forget about the war. Patrick Barras understood this approach.
8: I found an abandoned ambulance with its back doors open that had been driven onto the sand. Inside was a stretcher, so I climbed in, lay down, and went to sleep. I left the rattle of war outside. I walked around most of the day, up and down the beach, and eventually I came across an officer who looked like he'd just come from the UK to control the thing, looking alert, and he said he hadn't seen the battalion, and he told me to get into a rowing boat. So I waded out to it, hauled myself in, and found that it was being rowed by four RN Matterlows in a whaler from a destroyer. It took us some time. Eventually we got out to HMS Antony and there was a scrambling net let down the side. We climbed up and I was luckily ushered down into the wardroom. There were three or four officers. They were all asleep. I was given a hot cup of navy cocoa by the mess steward and I was very soon asleep myself with my head on the table and I don't remember any of the voyage.
3: We went to Ramsgate. And then there were those who couldn't deal with it at all. Vic Viner told me of the men he saw walking into the water and swimming out to sea. They were exhausted and demoralised. They were committing suicide, he said, and it's with me forever now. Contrast that experience with this one from Fred Carter of the Royal Engineers.
2: We were waiting on the beaches at Dunkirk. We were in the sand dunes. On the first night, my two mates and myself went out and had a glorious drink of champagne at an estaminet over the top of the beaches. We got rid of all our cash that way and had a good time and a feed there. We never had it, but we'd heard so much about this champagne that we thought we'd have it. We had a
14: glorious time with it.
3: There's a man who talks about having a glorious time even as, nearby, another man was so hungry that he tried to eat the leather strap off his helmet. But that's how life is, messy and contradictory and nuanced. The evacuation was a real event, involving hundreds of thousands of people, over ten miles of beaches, across ten days. Every kind of experience was had, every kind of behaviour was acted out. There was no one story. Do you remember Bill and Augusta Hersey? The private in the East Surrey's who married the daughter of the local cafe owner. She didn't speak English. He didn't speak French. Well, Bill, it turns out, had a very understanding officer who allowed Augusta to wear battle dress and to retreat with the company. So the husband and wife went together back to Dunkirk and they were evacuated on the 31st of May. When they arrived in Dover, Augusta was revealed as a woman and they were accused of being spies but all was explained and they eventually opened a greengrocer's and lived out their lives near Adelston in Surrey. And while Augusta was queuing up to leave France for good, so others were bringing home souvenirs of their time there. They'd been tourists, after all, and with their kit bags full of cigarettes they were now trying to avoid customs regulations. One man's bag was full of watches he'd picked up cheaply. He said he was going to sell them on in England. Another had hair clippers. He was going to set himself up as a barber. And one person was spotted up to his chest in water, queuing for a boat with a caged canary on his head. And there were other pets too, as able Seaman Ian Nethercott remembers.
2: When the troops arrived alongside us, was very sad. A lot of them had got dogs with them that they'd picked up. But as the men arrived with their dogs, the military police were shooting them and throwing in the arbour. Every time I did this, there was a great boo from the sailors on the ships loading up the men. We couldn't see any reason why these dogs shouldn't be taken back to Britain.
3: It wasn't just animals that were led up the mole. John Crosby.
13: A pongo stopped me. He was wheeling an enormous motorcycle. Can I get this on board your ship, mate? he asked. It's only done 280 miles, he added. As if it was a salesman trying to sell me the ruddy thing. I told him we'd come to save lives, not bikes. Told him to ditch it and left him lovingly caressing the gleaming controls.
3: But it's not dogs or motorbikes or hair clippers for which Dunkirk is ultimately remembered. It's the little ships. And it was on Friday the 31st of May that the legend of Dunkirk was really born. Because on that day, the flotilla, the armada of little ships arrived procession of coasters launches lifeboats barges cockle boats yachts motorboats they all headed across the channel from ramsgate to dunkirk the line stretched for 5 miles and they were badly needed so let's look at a few of the myths surrounding those little ships First of all, that they were mostly crewed by their owners, stout-hearted Englishmen who, like Clem Miniver in the 1941 film about his wife, jumped spontaneously into their boats before returning bearded three days later, never to speak of the terrible things they'd witnessed. Well, obviously, this wasn't true. Most boats were requisitioned when it became clear that they were needed. They were taken from boatyards along the Thames and from around the south coast. Some owners were very happy to give them up, some weren't and some never even knew they'd been taken. They were handed over to naval crews who took temporary control of them. And actually, these naval ratings often didn't understand the boats. They didn't know their workings, their quirks, and it would have been much better if their owners had taken them. Now, some little ships were manned by civilians who signed a form, a T-124, that made them volunteers in the Royal Navy for a month. Sometimes these people were fishermen. And a few people did really just jump in boats and come across. One man was supposedly seen paddling over in a two-person canoe. He had space for one other after all. Another popular myth is that the little ships brought lots of people home. Well of course they didn't because as we've seen that wasn't their job. It was the naval ships and the personnel ships that brought people home en masse. So those who tried to counter the myth By saying the little ships aren't really important because they didn't rescue anyone, well they're missing the point very badly. As far as I'm concerned, if a little ship brought somebody from the beach to a larger ship offshore, then it's just as responsible for rescuing that person as the larger ship. Without its contribution, that person would have remained on the beach to be captured by the enemy. And the fact was that Friday the 31st of May, the day the little ships arrived, was the most successful day of the evacuation. A total of 68,014 men were lifted from the beaches and the mole. The running total was 194,620 people rescued. The following day was almost as fruitful, with 64,429 more brought home. On the Sunday, Admiral Ramsay sent out a Nelson-esque call to his fleet. The final evacuation is staged for tonight, And the nation looks to the Navy to see this through. In fact, the evacuation wasn't finally over until Tuesday, the 4th of June, 1940, 80 years ago today. The last ship left Dunkirk at 3.40am, with the Germans only three miles away. A grand total of 338,226 soldiers had been evacuated. And many of the last ships to sail were full of French soldiers. On the Friday, Churchill had flown again to Paris, where he was forced to admit that so far only 15,000 French soldiers had been evacuated to England. Embarrassed, he promised that more French would be evacuated. bras de bras de he shouted as he clasped one hand in the other. And by the end of the evacuation, of the 338,226, over 120,000 men were French. But when soldiers arrived back in Britain, many of them felt ashamed. They felt like they were the remnants of a trampled army. And yet they found themselves treated as heroes. Gilbert White
8: Our reception at Dover was tremendous. On the platform there were a lot of ladies with tea and buns welcoming us home. Jolly good job, well done you. It was all rather fictitious, considering we were a defeated army. But they were delighted to see us back.
3: Many soldiers simply couldn't understand why they were being treated so positively. We felt we'd run away, says Humphrey Breeden. But this wasn't how the British public felt. They first learned of the evacuation on the 31st of May, the sixth day of Operation Dynamo. A mass observation morale report for the following day says, people are not quite clear what to make of the military situation, but think we must count this as a defeat. There is an undercurrent of feeling however that this will rouse us and that we will now show the germans what the british nation is like and now days after that it was clear that the british army was for the most part home and there was a genuine outpouring of national relief well for one thing friends and relatives were safe they were here with us even if some were suffering like lawrence Gregane.
2: I was taken to St Mary's Hospital in Sidcup. for three days. I hardly knew what went on. They treated my wound, which had turned rather nasty, and they helped me to get rid of scabies and what have you. I was partially blind, which gave me an excellent excuse for putting my hand at the back of the nurse's skirt. I was horribly undernourished. And later they told me I slept for 36 hours. Immediately I got home. I had nightmares about people attacking me. And if unexpectedly woken up in the night, I would quite often take up a fighting position instinctively. It went on for three or four years, but it
3: doesn't happen now. The fact was that Britain was still fighting. The country still had a chance. This outpouring of relief was really the organic birth of Dunkirk's spirit, that sense of national self-congratulation that still regularly wheeled out. But in June 1940, it didn't have to be manufactured or imposed or awkwardly applied. It was heartfelt, it was real, and it was reflected in and encouraged by Churchill's words to the nation. Now, there were, of course, many problems ahead. As Churchill made very clear, there was now the genuine threat, perhaps even the near certainty, of a German invasion. Hilda Cripps was a wife and mother in Essex.
0: I used to get up on those lovely summer mornings and look across the falenesses and wonder whether hordes of Germans would come in. It seemed so very, very possible. After a great deal of thought, I did something. I talked to my husband, and we decided that our four-year-old couldn't have done anything without us. I kept a bottle of a hundred aspirins, and if the Germans came, we'd have dissolved them in some milk and given them to her to drink. That's the truth. That's how real it was. But that...